Hiya, welcome to another episode of Zero Ambitions, a podcast about sustainability and the built environment. So, continuing with our heating, heat networks jag that we're on at the minute, unplanned, as it turns out. It's just the way the guests have fallen. We are with Lisa Tresida from Kenza Utilities. Now, Kenza Utilities came to my attention as the people behind the Heat the Streets project, a pioneering project in which Kenza, who are heat pump manufacturers as well, sought to provide a, a Cornish village that wasn't on the gas grid with their own grid heating infrastructure using a geothermal heat network and heat pumps. It's an amazing project that's been on my radar for a while. I think I saw an article in the FT back in February, the Financial Times for anyone not in the UK. And Lisa came up on our radar through an introduction from Duncan, former host for them who don't recognise Duncan Smith. Anyway, what Kenza have done is really interesting. The way Kenza have set it up, they install and own the underground heating infrastructure up to the property, and then the in-home pipe work and heat pump are on by the homeowner. So, I mean, it's interesting. So we had to have her on. So we talked about how the project got started, the challenges generally of decarbonisation, what she and Kenza learned about user behaviour, where they see opportunity in the space, what's motivating Kenza, and what they plan to do next. There's loads in there for anyone who's thinking about heating decarbonisation and or community-based solutions. I mean, it doesn't really matter where you are in the world, the idea is sound. And to be clear, this sort of thing isn't the only solution. It's part of a broad palette of solutions that we need to deploy. It probably won't be relevant everywhere, but it'll be definitely relevant in plenty of places. And that's it. What's particularly heartening about this project is how enthusiastically it was instigated, how enthusiastically it was taken up, how well it's worked, and how much potential it shows to work elsewhere too. So without much further ado, I'll let you get into it. It's just me and Jeff this week. Alex is off in the south of France at a wedding. All right, cheers. Enjoy. So there you go. Dan, you found a quiet spot. Yes, I was, yeah, just getting out of the way. She's about to start cooking. And the way our house is arranged, you've got to get through the dining room to get to the fridge. And so she'll be traipsing back and forth. And uh, it won't be especially peaceful. So I've shifted to the top of the garden. Yeah, how are we all? Grand. I said you, you're busy today, Lisa, on social media. You've just been... Nominated for an award, was it? Yeah, we've been shortlisted for the European Heat Pump Association Heat Pump Awards People's Choice, which is a very long title. It was quite hard to fit it into any kind of social media. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's going over three lines, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, but it seems to be because you have to get people to vote for you to win that one. So it's more of a popularity contest than anything else. First interruption, you'll find a link to vote for cancer if you choose to do so, uh, in the show notes. It's there. I'm sure they'd appreciate your spot. (laughs) Social media mobilisation. I've got to get a sharing, yeah. (laughs) Oh, fair play. Well, good luck with that. By the sounds of things, it will be deserved. Certainly, Certainly the coverage has been positive enough to suggest you're in with a shout. Yeah, I think I think people do like the concept in general, yeah. I don't have uh, an inside track on that. I am. I do have an affiliation 
with uh with the ehpa uh, i am the chair of the heat pump association of ireland um so um, we're part of the ehpa there in fact there's british representatives in that as well in spite of brexit uh, <laughs> it doesn't mean we're out of europe jeff just the eu yes, so like, yeah. much as they might go wish your, go back and look at your drawings and of your empire and stuff and, and look, you know yeah you can sit there in your part of the british isles being all sanctimonious <laughs> and that but <laughs> you can't take away from us our european heritage we've hated europe since long before brexit <laughs> we've loathed being any part of it since caesar invaded uh the south coast and <laughs> He, the natives he met claimed to be Aboriginal. Yeah, I love Stuart Lee's shtick about uh, about uh, Brexit. He kind of uh, you know anti-immigrant sentiment in in the UK and and, and whether it was you know uh, complaining about the Saxons coming over or something like that. You know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean we we blame the French for the Norman invasion. But the French hated the Normans. They were Vikings, weren't they? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much yeah. for joining us. Yeah, uh, and um. Uh, You're welcome to express your feelings on Europe at any point as well, Lisa. Uh, (laughs) See how it plays out for you in terms of this vote as well. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, maybe it's unfortunate. All right. Yeah. So uh, we're with Lisa. Is it Tresada? It's Tresada. Tresada. Yeah. It's a Cornish name. Not that I'm very Cornish. Are you not a Cornish nationalist, are you, no? No, I'm not, no. <laughs> I know one I know one of those in the industry. And it's an it's just an interesting view uh, that I I never heard of, you know. Ultimately the UK will break up into, you know, uh probably community level kind of uh of uh, uh, nations, but there you go. Um, yeah, everyone will be a Pimlico. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. The, 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 the idea too. down here is that we actually physically detach Cornwall from the rest of the UK. <laughs> um, they're quite they're quite extreme so are you based in cornwall then i am yeah yeah i'm sat in the offices above our factory now in truro oh very good so kent's is a company i've known um for years uh with you know a distant admiration i suppose i've never gotten close enough to you because in my function as a magazine publisher uh sustainable building magazine publisher I am extraordinarily negligent uh, of with regard to my kind of commercial duties, you know. Um, so um, we don't chase companies and try and hawk stuff to them anywhere near enough. Uh, we kind of sit the Kevin Costner. <laughs> it's not my. I wouldn't normally quote Kevin Costner, you know. Um, but that kind of uh, that if you build it, they will come approach. We kind of try and take you know uh, to, to, to the magazine. It's kept us going. Um, but uh, another interruption this time on. Jeff's behalf at Passive House Plus. If you're interested in advertising, and you should be, give Jeff a shout. His email address is jeff at passivehouseplus.ie. And please do, because it's an amazing product and it needs all your support. No, I've, I'm familiar with the company. Um, I've heard good things about you, and I'm very interested in 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 some of the stuff that you're that you're you're developing at the moment with regard to. He pumped kind of collector networks and stuff. So it's a fascinating, fascinating area, you know. And uh, uh, just as people start to absorb the concept of heat pumps, you're moving into uh, a, a, a perversion or deviation of it, should we say? Yeah. <laughs> well, I I think that actually our our version of of what we've been calling networked heat pumps is actually more familiar to people than your traditional heat pump. 
because instead of having um, a utility infrastructure in the ground with gas in it, you've got an, a utility infrastructure in the ground with water and antifreeze in it. And you've got your own little white box inside the house that you connect up to that network. So we're trying to demystify all of that and getting away from the sort of alien nature of, of heat pumps. You know, I, I think there's been a bit of a mistake made in how we talk about heat pumps and that we're always trying to explain what they are mm. and how much other technology does really get sold that way. No one explains how the fridge works or how your gas boiler works. You just assume that it does the job and that's good enough. So yeah, we're trying to move away from that rather than make it more complex or anything. We're trying to make it more points. familiar. And yeah. fascinating take and a way of, way, of, uh, way of putting it across. I will rob that. Well, Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> well, Alex will be quite aggrieved because he's been trying to make a similar point uh, with varying degrees of success where he references the iPhone. Magnificent little bit of technology, but everyone wants to just get their hands on it and not worry about where it comes from, how it's made, or how any of it works. Like You just know it works. Uh, yeah. and you just crack on. And I absolutely agree. Heat pumps have been sold as some magic, marvellous technology in an alienating manner. And I think mm. where you guys have come up on our radar was primarily you came up on my radar as a consequence of the Heat the Streets project, where you've heated a whole community within Cornwall to a great deal of acclaim. Like before we were introduced the other week, I, uh, or I think I mentioned over email, I found a folder with a bunch of notes and PDF articles about the campaign because I'd neglected my duties in getting in touch with you because, oh, this looks interesting. And, you know, I just wallowed around doing other things until someone uh, took the initiative and introduced us. (laughs) And I think it's really interesting for a couple of reasons. One, you've done a project and you made it work to, to great acclaim and to apparent success with the people. Two, you focused on the infrastructure, not the technology. And having come from a finance background, I mean, not being a finance person, just working in that sphere, like infrastructure is a really interesting proposition because it's about the stuff that's really important. It's about what works. And it's something that you can always get finance for because it's slow money, regular returns, reliable. And so it's a thing that should just make sense. Can can we take it back? I know to... uh, uh... I know it's annoying you to interrupt you, Dan, which is precisely the reason to do it, but um, can we um, take it back a step and just explain uh, what the hell this is? What is... Well, well that's, that's, that's where I'm going, Jeff. No, I don't want you to go there. Yeah, yeah, no, like being like a practiced and relatively accomplished presenter and host, I know yeah. where I'm going. So it, well, I don't like where you're right. going. <laughs> it's all right, love. Like, you're not just a biz that... Right, so back to what I was talking about, Lisa. Like what's interesting as well is you're not just a like your LinkedIn profile says you do business development, but you're yeah. not just business development. Like you led the whole Heat the Streets project from inception through funding to final delivery. And now, you know, this this uh you're on the roster for this award. Um so I think it's really interesting that distinction, utilities versus just a heat pump manufacturer. So I mean, do you want to give us your version of what this even is? Like what it is that you do where Kenza fits into it. And if you could give us a bit, uh, well, tell your version of the story about what the, the heat, where the Heat the Streets work came from and how it came to be. So I'll go, I'll have to go backwards. As far as you like. Further, as far yeah. as, uh, uh, Kenza is a, a Cornish company 
Originally, they started in a garage building heat pumps. And so we had, it was Ken's Engineering, they called it at the time. And then they they split the company into several parts. So we've then got Kenza Heat Pumps, which is the manufacturer of ground source heat pumps. And when Kenza won some larger projects, they found that there were issues with design and installation that had people picking up the phone and going, my heat pump doesn't work. And there's nothing wrong with the heat pump because they're actually really simple. It's the design and installation. So in order to smooth that out, Kenza Contracting was formed. So now we have a delivery company that does a turnkey service so that you don't get those issues between survey, design and installation, commissioning and ongoing um, running of that heat pump because we can cover the whole thing. And then you've got Kenzie Utilities, which was formed much later on. And the whole idea behind that was to take the infrastructure which is what makes us different to air source heat pumps. It's very stable infrastructure. It's installed in the ground. It'll last there 100 years. doesn't really require any particular maintenance. So it's perfect for long-term investment. But that infrastructure, if you were going to buy a ground source yourself, is much more expensive. So it tends to put people off having air source over ground source. So we had to find a way to break down that barrier to rolling it out. And that's where Heat the Streets came in. So at that point, when we designed the project, we hadn't used the infrastructure as a utility asset at that point. We didn't have the business model to back that up. We hadn't tested it on the market and had a way to promote it and sell it. So it was all brand new at that stage. And so um, the streets was to to demonstrate that new business model of splitting ownership of the stuff inside the house and the stuff outside the house and showing that people would like that. So how big had you managed to make it a project up to the the Heat the Streets campaign? So Kenza Contracting was already doing shared ground arrays, is what we call them. And the original reason behind that was actually to access the non-domestic renewable heat incentive. So the NDRHI, which gives you more or gave you more funding than the domestic renewable heat incentive. But there are actually other benefits to 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 using shared ground arrays as well. So you get to use what we call the diversification factor. And that's a, a calculation that just assumes that you're not running every single heat pump on that network at full capacity at the yeah. same time for any extended period. So you can slightly reduce the size of the ground array for 10 properties compared to what you would have to install if you did an individual array for each one. How deep are you burying the collectors now? Pardon? How deep do you bury the collectors? These are horizontal collectors, I presume. Uh, these are, well, usually vertical. So we all oh, vertical bore. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So if we're actually installing a system, we tend to only bother with the bigger contracts. So where you've got multiple properties and that that'll be new builds or social housing retrofit, where you've got a single decision maker and lots of buildings. Okay. Um, so if you were a private household, With lots of land, you'd probably use a horizontal array. But where you've got space constraints, because you've got lots of houses and not as much land, you go vertical. So we'll drill boreholes up 
up to about 310 meters although that's 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 deep but you get really good really high stable uh, temperatures when you get into those kinds of depths Uh, well you do you 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 get very stable temperatures at just one and a half meters below the ground you don't really have to go that deep it's just how you know how much space have you got so on on heat the streets our average borehole depth was about 120 meters because that was that was what worked there have you seen, I know um, uh, I remember speaking to uh, a fellow from one of the energy agencies years ago in um, in Cork, I think it was, and um, talking about uh, getting lucky, uh, striking gold in some cases, hitting like it's geothermal, if you even call it that, uh, veins, where you have, you know, you, you, you could just happen to strike a very high temperature. Uh, so there's a degree of inconsistency, I suppose, with uh, with the source temperatures, depending on on the ground conditions. There, well, the, we actually have a huge amount of information in the UK on the on the geology. So you've got that. I, I, I don't actually get involved with that level of the design. We, we always pass that off to the experts. <laughs> but there is there's loads of data out there about the um, about the geology at various depths because you it changes and and a British geology is actually really quite complex. Yeah. But we calculate how deep you need to go depending on the size of the house the thermal conductivity of the ground, um, you know, so it, and we measure that over a 20 year term to design it so that the the ground doesn't get too cold and your efficiency doesn't drop. It's, there's a a lot comes into all of that planning. So how big was Heat the Streets when it started? And how did you manage to assemble the people for that? Like getting people to buy into an idea, it's not easy, is it? Well, we, well, that that was that was how we started. That was our space assumption. So we, uh, I, I wrote this application for the funding, and I said, right, we're going to get five hundred homes um, connected to our infrastructure. We're going to charge them monthly, just a, a flat rate, standing charge, and they'll all connect their heat pumps, and it'll be fantastic. Um, and we thought that, well, a little bit more information there. We're looking at three markets there. So there's the new build market who we were asking some money from because we know that they've got money ready to to pay towards that installation. There's the social housing retrofit market because, again, they have budgets that are ready to to improve the the properties that they're looking after. And then there's the private retrofit market. And that was the bit that we knew was going to be the hardest bit to work with because instead of our usual markets where you've got one decision maker and lots of buildings – in this market, you've got lots of decision makers and lots of buildings, and not very many of those have got a budget that they've got ready to invest in the house. So we mm-hmm. thought, right, that's going to be really hard to do. They'll be unfamiliar with heat pumps. They'll be unfamiliar with the contracts. They'll be nervous that we're going to rip them off. We'll offer the whole thing with no upfront cost. So the, all of the private retrofit customers that got a heat pump on our project got that with no cost on day one now they they pay us a standing charge going forwards we were oversubscribed by (laughs) by about five times so we started on this assumption that you'd have to do a lot of convincing and actually we could have gone on and done half the village with that offer because it was so good and people saw that it was so good and they actually want to reduce their carbon footprint. They want to do that kind of thing, but it's difficult. And this is in your backyard though, right? This, so this was actually a mix. The focus of our retrofit work 
was a village in Cornwall called Stythians. And we did a mix there of boreholes in gardens and boreholes in the road. And that's the, we believe it's the first time it's been done in the world. There's actually, there's another project doing the same kind of thing now in Massachusetts, but ours was the, the first and it was just in a little Cornish village. So we actually drilled in the public highway and put our trenching through the public highway and connections in the footpath outside of houses. So it really looks like a an infrastructure asset, you know, a, a, right. a utility that people are familiar with. And when you say it's the first, you believe it's the first, can you clarify what you mean by the first? So the, the first ground array in the road. So the, there are other projects that have had borehole fields in private land where they've you know, they've, they've put lots of boreholes in a park or a field, and then they can connect that to, to properties from there. But we actually did, we drilled into the highway. So down beneath the um, foundations of the roads, down to about 110 metres. Wow. Amazing. So we've got our, the, the heat for the houses that are connected to that array is coming from beneath the streets. Amazing. <laughs> That's really heartening to find out how... I'll use this word advisedly, easy it was to make that happen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, like, so we had a chat the other week at which, I mean, you said a lot of things that resonated with us. One of the things was, we don't need to get into it particularly, new build is the easy part. Like, yeah. Because uh, it is, like, this is the one of the things like where we are talking about a thing like Passive House, there's no reason not to make every building passive house except that there isn't the expertise to be able to deliver it i mean that's a big big reason but you know <laughs> what i found interesting on the new build aspect is that you got uh i mean you got one of the biggest or the biggest i don't know if it is uh unscrupulous developers to join you in this uh this project and if we need to i can bleep out that word <laughs> That you got persimmon involved. We've had a lot of bad press over the years in such a positive project. Tells its own story. Like they're a they're a, a group who they're not interested in decarbonisation publicly. Well, well, to and I, I, you know, I, I haven't got any particular opinions on any new build developers. Um, but they they weren't involved on heat the streets. We are talking. Well, I'm I'm not in that side of sales, but I believe someone is or has been speaking to them. Okay. Uh, it's just they were referenced in the the FT article alongside you, so they are stealing valor already. <laughs> oh, and perhaps that that I mean that may have come from one of my other colleagues who was speaking to them separately. But they, yeah, they didn't. We didn't install anything on their houses during heat the streets. But you have drummed up some interest from them. Uh, well, perhaps that's a dead end then. Yeah, <laughs> but the um, the bit about new build is 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 not a dead end. No, I mean, so that during during heat the streets, we didn't really speak very much about the new build properties. All the focus is on the retrofit, and that's because since we since we began heat the streets and before we finished it, we were able to commercialize the offer, this split ownership offer to our new build customers, and so. We don't really bother talking about the innovation of it anymore because it's already on the shelf being sold. Um, <laughs> it, it just makes so much sense. You know, what what developer doesn't want ground source for the price yeah. of air source? And and what kind of um 
uh, have you got monitoring going on in the sort of seasonal uh, COPs that you're uh, achieving yet on 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 these kinds of jobs? Obviously, they should be better than air source, uh, given the given the source temperature and the stability of it. We yeah, we didn't. It's a bit of a shame actually because we didn't put monitoring equipment on the the heat pumps that we installed, and it, it's it's a shame because we're likely to get different. Um, efficiencies on those systems because there's so much private retrofit and mm. consumer behavior has more impact on the efficiency and running cost of a system than most people bother thinking or talking about. Um, so it would actually have been incredibly interesting to have had that monitoring equipment on those systems. But yeah. unfortunately, we haven't got it. I, it just reminds me, if I could dig it out from our archives, because um, when I heard about this project, first of all, it reminded me of an article that we'd published. So I've been doing this magazine work and its progenitor, which Dan started with me uh, back in the day for 20 years now. Um, and um, there's a project that we published in the mag probably 17 years ago or so in Tralee, County Kerry in Ireland. And it's a new build social housing project, a uh, big enough project. Um, and it had a shared collector with uh, individual heat pumps feeding off it. But they had some monitoring. I remember talking to the consultant, took me out to a very nice restaurant actually in Dublin to to, uh, to discuss it, uh, Rowley's Bistro. Um, and um, they had some sort of curious setup where they had solar dumping into the collectors as well. Yeah. Um, and they were getting COPs in some cases of like something like eight or nine. Ridiculous kind of figures, you know. In other words, for for, for uh, the uninitiated listener, the, CO, the COP is the coefficient of performance. So it's the amount of kilowatts of heat you get back per kilowatt of electricity that you put in um, and you're normally happy if you get in the region of three or you know nor- anywhere north of three uh uh with, with an air to water uh heat pump is, is 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 not too shabby so but you'd be getting but you know i don't know you, you presumably uh kensa would have data from some projects obviously on on on, on CLPs. We, we do so um we've got data on on well on one project that i'm aware of where it's the shoebox heat pump that was installed, and the, the shoebox is a very—it's a small heat pump. So it, it was—I don't know if it still is, but it was the world's smallest and quietest. But it's—it was designed for social housing retrofit. Mm. So prior to that, there wasn't a heat pump available for those smaller properties, and it wasn't at a price point that you would want to do at scale. And they tend to be a bit too complex. So we've got this, and it really is a little white box that can fit under the kitchen sink that doesn't have loads of controls at the front that you can fiddle with. But it is small, so it's compromising on efficiency. You, I mean, you could have you could have right. the perfect heat pump, but no one's going to be able to afford it. So th- this is a, a compromise, and that runs at roundabout COP of three. And the the data that I've seen on that was was not that fantastic it was it was round about that but the the issue is that where we install it it tends to be in social housing retrofit and the the people that are using that tend to use them for intermittent heating oh yeah yeah we've so, heard actually this winter the winter just gone or, or sorry the, the, the during the energy crisis not just gone but the winter that we had uh, uh last year um uh we're hearing stories of people um uh, in some cases, switching off the heat pump altogether um, and then starting it. And some heat pumps, I don't know about yours, but some heat pumps, when you turn them on again, they use an electric immersion, an electric element to bring Ours them Ours doesn't do that. 
Okay, yeah. some of them do. So you've got an efficiency of one, you yeah. know, a COP of one in that case. Uh, yeah, so people in a cycle of despair, basically. Absolutely. So we, we you know, we, we know that people use our heat pumps that way. We, we know that market. So we have designed and we and we designed the installation in a way that it can do that intermittent heating because that's what people are going to do. And you're you're not going to get them to turn it on and leave it on really low. And and to be honest, they might not even save money by doing that because they may only use their heat pump for a very small part of the day. And so when when you see then the the efficiencies that you're getting for that system, a lot of it's actually for hot water production. Right. Um, and and so the monitoring is is not as good as you would hope. But this is this is where you know you, you have to consider the the needs and uh, behaviors of your market. Well, thank you for being so candid. This, you know, it's not normal for suppliers to talk in this kind of a way. Um, so it's uh, and it's refreshing and it's and it's important because we we get nowhere unless we can have these kinds of conversations. You know. Oh yeah, I mean, you have to design products for the people that are using them. Well, you say that. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is what's particularly interesting is that like we aren't slagging off the product here, Jeff. We're talking about no, no. a product that's being misused. And when I say misused, again, I mean that has to be caveated. What is misuse? Because like we're about to take on a project which is related to heating within social housing, uh, all those sorts of environments. And like fundamental to the challenge we've got ahead of us is the fact that you don't know. It's hard to design a system for a large group of people who who are living normal lives. And when I say normal lives, I mean the lives that aren't documented within SAP. I mean, the lives where they're working on shift work, where some people need more heat, other people need less. It's really, it's really difficult to come up with solutions that are going to be able to accommodate everyone. The only way we're going to be able to come up with anything like that is by considering the behavior ahead of the technology. Yeah. And, I mean, in those terms, so this idea that like the, the technology has been designed to suit people's lifestyles to one extent or another is really interesting. The other thing that you said uh, when we spoke a little while ago that really resonated with me because it's a bugbear of Alex and I as well, people aren't comfortable with external control of their heating. They want to be able to get their hands on the buttons. And uh, I was wondering what, how you had come to that conclusion. Because you know that's a lived experience conclusion. <laughs> well, before before I worked on heat the streets, um, I, I spent a bit of time on a project called Energy Superhub Oxford, where we were looking at how smart controls combined with time of use tariff can save you money on running your heat pump, mm. and. We were doing a lot of work on how you would design the control interface to uh, to help people achieve good outcomes. And this was all based on the idea that the control was still internal, that it was you know running an algorithm that would create a uh, heating profile that would be cheaper to to use. But that it wasn't. It wasn't say you know a, a control system elsewhere that was turning it on and off for you know like aggregating demand and saving money that way. This was very much more about the house and the individual. But we found that that was difficult to get people accustomed to, 
And partly because, again, this was in social housing retrofit and people want to be in a lot of control over when their heating is turning off because that's how they control how much money it's going to cost them. And so I I don't think that people are ready for going as far as energy as a service. And I'm I'm not convinced that uh, demand side response is great for people. And as you say, they're very different needs. So, you know, how do you accommodate shift work within that? How do you accommodate lifestyle changes like having a baby or getting sick where you might want more or less heat? You know, I I think it's too I think it's all too personal. And and actually what we what we tend to see in low carbon worlds and you know people adopting all these new technologies is that their their home is their castle and the the more separate they can be from the rest of the network the better <laughs> and that's that's um a, a, another thing i mentioned was the um quite a while back before the energy crisis domestic batteries were a fairly silly idea they you didn't get a return on investment but people really wanted them because they wanted to generate their own electricity with their solar panels and to store it in their house and use it when they wanted it. So which of those people is going to give up control of when their heating turns on and off to suit the network? Mm. That these things don't make a whole lot of sense. Now I, I'm I'm very confident that there'll be a compromise that everybody's happy with. And it's probably something like a control that works well with price signals so that you can save money if that's what you're looking to do. But I don't think that external control of your heating system is going to be it. There was a German oh. utility. I, I, we should actually do some digging on it. But years ago, um, I mean, this predates the Internet of Things and all that, that uh, ran a second circuit of electricity into, into some of their customers' houses. And they'd have certain non-essential loads, like a fridge, for instance, which doesn't need to be on all the time, or a heat pump on that circuit. And the quid pro quo was uh, it was was cheap energy prices on the basis that they could turn these appliances off and on as as they saw fit. Essentially, I'm simplifying things, but that was the nub of it. So it would be fascinating to see. I mean, of course, there's cultural differences from country to country too to take into account, and among different sort of demographics within a country, whatever you know. So you that that all comes into it. But that's an area that I would like to research. I I I see what you're saying. I think there's. uh, there's uh, a, a lot, a lot in it. Um, the idea of losing control in that way, I think not many people are going to be attracted to that, you know? Yeah. And I think you've got to, to move these things along more slowly, you know? So if you want people to switch to heat pumps, do that and, and make products that that help move that along what people want. They don't change the whole experience of heating all in one go. You know, you might be able to, to do a step at a time. One of the things that we've, so we've been trying to come up with user profiles, like to try and work out who the users are and can we create archetypes. And the moment we try and, uh, we try and define what, try and define a family. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like trying to find a, like, not just like a, a, a family unit out of social housing, like middle-class families, there is no nuclear family anymore. It is a very different world, and like there are loads of commonalities, but there are so many differences. It's really, really difficult to to create any archetypes. And to your point, like uh, that you just referenced, a family who've just had a baby, 
like all of a sudden, like that previous profile, it's out the window. It's a whole new game. And it will be another set of circumstances in two, three years' time. They'll be using energy differently. It's it's an impossible it is an impossible task trying to pin any of this stuff down. Trying yeah. to work with the the chaos, I think, is the is the only real answer, but no one's comfortable with that. And, and the only solution, as you say, in the context of in particular new build and some retrofit scenarios, is making a building so efficient that it's capable of being of achieving the higher levels of comfort if people need them. And you can open the bloody window if you want a cooler, you know, um, within reason. You know, I mean, obviously. Well, I think that's you know that and that's another way that that we think ground source is better because in in that situation you can have passive cooling with ground source heat pumps. So it's uh, passive cooling is it's like so your um, air conditioning unit is active cooling. Hmm. Passive cooling is when you are running the fluid from the ground array through a fan coil unit to to cool a house down. So you're not actually running a compressor. But it's still air-based cool air-based cooling rather than running it through the, the floor or the rods, right? Yes. Yeah. And yeah. that makes sense because I think um when I've seen people experiment with um with hydronic cooling, should we say, through through uh, a a wet heating system. And it has some scope, but there are issues with it and there's limitations to its impact, I believe, you know. Um, yeah, yeah. We we we've set it up with a fan coil unit before. And we think that more and more people are going to need that. Yeah, because we're cooking the world. Um, yeah. So, uh, <laughs> are you? Um, that's where. And is that something that you can offer as a, a bolt-on module, a standard, or is that? Uh, yes. Yeah. It's really. Is it an expensive add-on the fan coils? So they're not. Uh, I don't think it's. I, I'm not entirely sure on the pricing. Okay. But yeah. it's not. It's not ridiculously expensive. Okay. So, your offer then it's not one size fits all. No. That even though you're on the network. So how much range are you able to offer people? Well, I mean, you, you can so you can heat or cool any any size of building. Kenza does heat pumps from three kilowatts up to eighty. Yeah. Oh, there you so go. I suppose. And, and you can cascade those so you can have several. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It's so it's, I suppose, yeah. Do you want your whole house heated? Do you want it cooled as well? Like, yeah, <laughs> oh, and, right, and yeah. the ideal would be that you have a, a heat the streets project where you're you know you've got loads of houses connected, and then you also have uh, non domestic heat and cooling customers on that network as well because it reduces the cost of the infrastructure that you install because if you're taking heat from one place and using it in another you don't need loads of boreholes in between. You might yeah. be able to balance that out a bit. So it reduces the capital cost. And it also increases the efficiency of the heat pump. As you were saying before about taking heat from those solar panels mm. and mm. putting it into the ground, that raises the temperature of the ground. And then yeah. all of a sudden, your heat pump has less work to do. And I really liked the leanness you were talking about from an engineering perspective. I remember um, an erstwhile client of ours, an Irish company who were uh, a heat pump installer, uh, among other things, who were um, picking up a lot of work. Ashgrove, actually, is the company. Um, they're picking up a lot of work in the UK on sort of district heating style systems, you know, key uh, pump based district heating systems or, or communal heating systems in buildings and stuff like that. Um, yeah. And they were telling me that they were winning a lot of work on some of these projects because the consultants were being so uh, 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 and the other installers they were they were bidding against were being so conservative 
that, uh, that they were massively over-engineering the, the system uh, on the assumption that, that, for instance, everybody would be having a shower at the same time. And I know SIBSI has guidance um, on, uh, which I think you were kind of, uh, you were alluding to this principle at least, that, you know, uh, you can make reasonable assumptions about uh, how many people will be calling on this heat source at any one time. So that that's... Yeah you know, a way of reducing capital costs and also reducing uh, embodied carbon and stuff as well, obviously, if you're, if you're, if you're using less kit, provided it's, you know, you're not value engineering the hell of it so, so that, so that you, you, you don't get hot water. Oh, Jeff, yeah, did he cut out on you as well? Right. Yeah. Or oh, maybe he'll come back in a minute and be able to finish his point. Oh, it's not looking hopeful. <laughs> it's not looking hopeful. <laughs> All right, you're back. Yeah, I turned you... off the video so, so that I spare, spare you my face for a while. Um, for the sake Very of my voice. Kind. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, I was just, where was I saying? Uh, uh, embodied carbon. Had I got that far? Did you hear that, Biff? Yeah. Um, yeah that, well, that, that, I'd stop listening. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. The, the, the final point I was making is that the thing you have to watch out for with a system like this is that um, you can value engineer something in the, in the truest sense of the world, word or the term rather than the euphemistic kind of cutting cutting things to the bare bone, <laughs> destroying everyone's lives. Um, um, or you can end up in a situation where, you know, what you want to avoid doing is creating a situation where somebody turns on the tap and it's cold water or tepid water that comes out, you know? Absolutely. But you do, you know, and you do have to find out where those points are because otherwise all, all of this technology is still really expensive and installing that ground array infrastructure is expensive but you you know you, you need to find ways to to compromise so that people have good outcomes even on very cold days but it doesn't all have to be perfect you know you don't have to have maximum cop 365 days of the year yeah. you could have something that works that people can afford and that performs well instead of perfectly and and that's that's yeah. that sweet spot that we have to find. Well, that's it. Like uh, Jeff and I, from the value proposition of the name, uh, marketing speak. From what we say about the the podcast, like we used to say, uh, sustainability, the built environment, and zero carbon goals. And what we've we keep coming up against is we hate the last bit. It was just a sort of uh, proposition arrived at by committee originally because net zero is the thing everyone was talking about, and net zero is a bit of an accountancy trick. And carbon zero is a fallacy when you're talking about building. It's all carbon, isn't it? Like, yeah. we're all carbon. It's like trying to get to, like, I still like the aspiration of zero carbon. Because if you aim for something significant, something hard to achieve, you're probably going to do better than you would otherwise if you were compromising from the... But we've had, uh, we had to Toby Cambray on the podcast the other week talking about the heat pumpification idea where... Just get a building fit for using a heat pump. There, you've done a great job. Like, things are better. Yeah. It doesn't have to be perfect. And this is something that we need to get our heads around that we're still not comfortable with. What the green building sector doesn't feel comfortable with is just somewhat like good is much better. I think Peter Rickaby's perspective that bad retrofit is worse than no retrofit. Yes, I agree. You However, mean by bad retrofit, though. <laughs> well, this is it. But it's his words, I can paraphrase him, but it not working. And uh, your distinction there sort of offers grist to my mill here, leaping in on the, the subtleties and nuance and interpretation of it. It's pretty clear what bad retrofit is, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Like it's bad insulation. Like We don't need to get into the detail of that. But 
insulating people's homes better, making them more efficient, so you you've less less power going into your heating. Jesus, it's fucking obvious, isn't it? Sorry. <laughs> Wait, my... So we 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 get we hear a lot of people going, oh yeah, you know, but I can't have a heat pump because I've got to do all this insulation work. <laughs> yeah, well, no, you know, if, if the if the if the challenge here is low carbon, then the answer is a heat pump. And if you're losing lots of heat now, you'll carry on losing lots of heat with or without your heat pump. You, that that's that's building maintenance issue at that stage where you should yeah. do some basic maintenance and insulation anyway. You don't have to go deep retrofit on your house to to have a decent outcome from any heating system. As long as it's installed properly. I, I think for this reason, I think, um, I don't know whether you're aware of it, Lisa, but I think Kensa should be talking to the Association for Environment Conscious Building, the AECB, about their new retrofit standards, because they're, the, the new uh, level one retrofit standard is specifically predicated on so-called heat pumpification. It's about, right. um, you know, a bunch of, you know, very nerdy uh, expert kind of green building enthusiasts or um, who kind of fostered the development of the pacifist trust, for instance, in the UK, coming up to their own to their own conclusion that uh, the grid is decarbonized so much. And we have now enough evidence on on heat pump performance uh, in suboptimal conditions that this is something practical that we can do to radically decarbonize now. It's just, you know, so, so, so that standard, which is, it does have some fabric improvements, but kind of a focus on pragmatism and pr- practicality and pushing the building as long, as far as you can, you know, but you, it, I describe it as a kind of a no building left behind. <laughs> oh, well, uh, <laughs> goodbye, Jeff. I'll just give him a second. I think we know where he was going with it, though. Uh, the ACB, though, do you know them? Uh, no, I don't. No, I don't think that I do. Um, I'll connect you. I'll connect you with them. Uh, yeah, that'd I... be great. I'll, I'll probably pass it on to somebody else. But it's... yeah, I, I say I, I'm, I'm sure that other people in Kenza are aware of them. But Kenza's got a fantastic example of this. Though we actually installed ground source heat pumps in uh, National Trust property. So this was a Trulisic house, which is three or four miles from the Kenza factory, is a grade two listed building, I believe. And we installed ground source heat pumps in there. We even kept the Victorian cast iron radiators because we weren't allowed to change them. Wow. So you can, you know, you can decarbonize anything. Yeah. You, you might have to compromise a bit on the outcomes of that. You know, that's that's not a property that is inhabited. But it had to it had to have a decent heating system to maintain it, and that's that's the point. So they're also within that standard, uh, taking account of intermittency of heating heating in some situations, taking account of different temperature profiles. And it's a question then of saying to people, look, you know, in a, in this difficult building, um, we can do a heat pump and we can set it up to run as uh, the lowest flow temperatures we can. But you know, uh, bearing in mind the limitations of the building, for instance, uh, this is what you can expect from it. Um, and it, it's more carbon efficient if you can work with if you can work with cast iron radiators. Yeah. Like it is more carbon efficient because it's no good buying Chinese really pro ones because you end up having to replace them and fix them. Like the old stuff, it works. It really, really does. And the bloody brilliant emitters oh. of heat. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's a whole life carbon assessment or calculation that you need to do, of course. But yeah, uh, you know, you uh, do. 
I'm, I'm just happy talking, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> all right. I think so, it's also so. What, what I'm thinking about quite a lot is how you roll out Keep the Streets across the UK. How do you make that available to the average householder? And a lot of it is all about the um, the retrofit cost to the consumer. And then it's you know how much budget have you got? And I you, you just know just from people that you know that we don't all have a budget for doing a whole load of insulation and a new heating system. If we're going to achieve net zero, the thing you have to change is your fuel. It's the gas. And yeah. so yeah. it's the pump. And it, you know, you can't afford to do all of the things, but a lot of people can afford to do some of that. Maybe the thing to them is to put in a bit of loft insulation because that's what they've got a budget for. But if you can get lots of people to change to a heat pump, it's a you know it's it's the way to go. And and I I think that there's there's a few things in the way of that in messaging in the UK. And one of those is this thing that's fabric first being pushed all the time. (laughs) Fabric next. We're not saying don't do that. Yeah. But if you want to reduce carbon. Do a heat pump and do fabric next, and then hydrogen's coming. Uh-huh. I mean, yeah. it, it's not. <laughs> you've, yeah. got, you've got all these people kind of hanging on to see if they can keep their gas boiler because there might be hydrogen coming down the pipe. Yeah, as I said, to, uh, I think on the podcast last week, Lisa, um, the Irish government has just produced its um, a hydrogen strategy. And we've, when we were lucky to have the Greens in government and the report, uh, the section of the hydrogen strategy on on dwellings. Uh, doesn't exist. <laughs> other, other, <laughs> other than to say, other than to say that hydrogen is not suitable for dwellings you know, or for commercial buildings. Basically, yeah, um, it has a role, but that's not it. You know. Um, oh yeah, I mean, it, it, it's a fantastic energy storage medium. Just don't burn it in your house. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I love, I love that. Uh, like it's, it's less dangerous if there is an explosion than gas. But explosions are like four or five times more likely. <laughs> yeah, do you know what doesn't explode? <laughs> All right. So shifting into the territory you were you were leading us just before, like the able to pay market is where it's at because social housing is sort of taken care of by the obligations uh, imposed upon the institutions. They've got to decarbonize. They've got to make sure people who exist in their accommodation or live uh, in their accommodation. I mean, both, to be fair. Yeah. It's quite bleak. <laughs> uh, a lot of people exist but don't live. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They, uh, like, we know how to deal with that because you can address it at scale. But that sort of scaling up into the able to pay market, it's a much more difficult challenge. And there was something that you said to me when we spoke uh, was that heat pumps are an ideological issue. I think uh, well, no, no, not quite my words, <laughs> but, <laughs> but it's, it's the drivers. So, you know, when you, when you start talking to people saying, right, I can put this low carbon heat network down your street. You'll pay me a standing charge for that. You'll pay 10,000 pounds to upgrade the inside of your house and have a heat pump installed in it. And then you won't save anything on your running cost. You know, that that I, I can't promise that they're going to save on their running costs because electricity is so ridiculously expensive in the yeah. UK compared yeah. to gas. And that's that's not a fault of heat pumps. Heat pumps are fantastically efficient. It's, you know, it's a fault of our energy markets in the UK. 
So the but the the driver then is people still want it and they will still buy it for ideological reasons in the same way that people buy electric vehicles. Now we haven't mm. got we haven't got the sexiness of electric vehicles. Heat pumps aren't aren't particularly sexy at all, and you don't tend to invite people around to see your new heat pump. Not mm. some some might, but yeah. you know I think it'll be yeah. that common. So it's it's that whole thing about saving the planet, and so. When we begin to roll this out with our early adopters, it it is to the people that have the luxury of worrying about the environment and their impact on it, and that's what we can sell them. Well, um, I would be inclined to stand up for Mike Fell here about making heat pumps sexy. He, (laughs) uh, Mike Fell of uh, UCL, uh, Pump Chic fame, he is making every effort to make them sexy and has a, a an Instagram account of lots of glamour photography of heat pumps in situ. Looking oh, yeah, you don't mean like glamour model photography, you mean glamour heat pumps. Yeah. Well, I am alluding to the glamour model oh, style photography. I mean, you know, they're not draped over a car. The property pornography. The the sexy heat pump pictures that I tend to see, it's actually the plumbing behind them. (laughs) (laughs) And the the one at Trillisic House was amazing. And the the, the one that we've got here at the factory, which is actually running off mine water. Again, the plumbing, the pipe work behind that was beautiful. And it's, you know, it's a fantastic thing to come and see. Um, Mm. But that's a bit of a weird thing. <laughs> Don't think many people are going to get that excited about yeah. pipes. The lithe curves of heating <laughs> infrastructure. Oh yes. Oh. And there's talking... one. Yeah. <laughs> we're talking about like the fetishization of fabric a moment ago, and now we're getting into heating engineering. Oh yes. Yeah. Look at that. Oh. One. Th- one, one th- one thing I wanted to know, though, Lisa, was um, who owns the infrastructure and uh, and for how long and and uh, what's you know one of the concerns I would have about some of the sort of ESCO models at times is the is around ownership of um, and have you got uh, a specific length of time in terms of contracts? What happens, you know, uh, or or is it just you know a, car- a, a continuous uh, uh, agreement or, or how does it work? So we have. Um, we have a 40-year contract right. with customers, and that's it was actually only 20 years on Heat the Streets because it was a, an innovation project and it wasn't privately financed in the same way. So for projects going forwards, we've got service agreements and lease agreements that, that vary depending on the customer and the type of project that are for a 40-year term, and that's because that's how long we finance the array for. Mm. So that's kind of the sweet spot of managing the ongoing cost of that, you know, the, the the monthly standing charge to the consumer. At the end of that term, it rolls over or you can renegotiate. So, you, you know, you may be able to switch it to somebody else, but there's kind of a uh, a clause there that you can escape that or continue with a maintenance contract so that you're not responsible for any of that infrastructure and and the servicing does it apply to what does it take in does it take into account the individual heat pumps too no the the agreement is for the pipework up to the point that it connects with the building so if you were to build an extension over the top of it 
again, it would still be just up to the external boundary of the house. And that's the same as your, you know, your water supply contract or anything like that. And it is, it's Kenza Utilities that owns that infrastructure. And we're also mm. responsible for maintaining it. So, you know, the, there's not a, there's not a whole lot that can go wrong with it. The biggest risk is probably someone else digging through it. But we we list it on line search before you dig. We've actually also recently become heat trust accredited so we we know that the whole contract issue and those long-term agreements is new and unusual to most people unless they've been a heat network customer before so we're really going heavy on the consumer protection which is a great sales point if nothing else yeah and we're registering our customers with the heat trust which is a voluntary accreditation Although in the future, it will be taken over by Ofgem. Okay. So this is, whenever I've heard about a private company developing infrastructure like this, there is a a sort of alarm bell in the back of my head that goes off because, not literally, metaphorically, uh, Jeff. And this is why I did that long and winding foreshadowing at the beginning of the conversation, Jeff, that you didn't know where I was going. I mentioned the finance part because like, I've worked with infrastructure and private equity firms who they will look at a situation like a Kenza and think, oh, that's very clever. That's very good. And watch and see the opportunity. So the point at which you have paid for, the point at which the infrastructure investment is paid off, then all of a sudden it switches into like boom time profits. Oh, sorry, it has the potential to. And an organization like Kenza may well have covenants within the organization which prevent customers being rinsed out or rates being increased unfairly. However, some unscrupulous PE firm, Mm. like watching over your shoulder, can organize a hostile takeover and without your will, buy it up and jack up the prices like Martin Shkreli did with... I think it was diabetes medicine in America. Oh, yeah. He was yeah. that hedge fund bro who bought the Wu Tang album for, I don't know, yeah, a the one copy of us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Exactly. He, uh, yeah, that's a big risk. Or, sorry, yeah. instinctively, it feels like a risk. Like, because the best people, even with the best will in the world, folk can still end up getting rinsed out. Yeah, yeah, it's possible. Um, although with, with our contracts, um, if, if our contracts are taken over by another organization, say Kenza goes bust and that contract is is taken, and, and these are all within an SPV, so they are sort of slightly safe from us going uh-huh. bust, that contract couldn't be just changed because you've got a, a takeover. It would mm-hmm. have to be at the with the agreement of the consumer because it's all it's very limiting how you can make any additional charges on that contract. So it's only linked to the um, consumer price index. That's the only increase that can be made on that during the term, mm-hmm. other than charges if the you know if the consumer breaks it, you've got to go out and fix stuff. So it is actually it's pretty tight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just at the point of ah. Oh. So in terms of the rolling over of the contract then, now is the is So it could it could roll over with us. Yeah. Or they could negotiate. I'm I'm assuming with other people in the market at that stage. Yeah. So there's no opportunity for the owner of the infrastructure to start dictating terms. 
No, uh, not, not with oh. the contracts that we've set up. That sounds very interesting then. All right, my mind is at ease. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> no, so when, when, when we started this, it was actually part of my application process for Heat the Streets that I had to share our draft service agreement with the funder. And we had to make sure even at that stage that consumers were protected because the funder doesn't, that was the European Regional Development Fund. They don't want to have a story come out that we've put all these people into hideous contracts and completely ripped them off over a, or over any kind of term. So yeah, it was, it was always been a part of it. And I think some of this, and actually after that process and before we got people to sign up, we actually made it even better in their interest because we, we started seeing the, the sort of financial crisis that the UK was going into and the, interest prices at uh, the interest rate going up and so we in the heat the streets version of the contracts capped the increase at cpi or five percent whichever was lower so that they didn't see an increase of 14 percent or whatever it might be next <laughs> were you trying to mitigate against liz truss in your in your <laughs> yeah it was before that uh, <laughs> um, any lunatic archetype <laughs> I think I think that quite a lot of this comes from the, the the purpose behind what we're doing, and this is this goes back to my again my point at the beginning. Originally, we had Kenza heat pumps as a manufacturer, and we had to create Kenza contracting to de-risk engagement with the market for for our consumers. And so the the whole point of Kenza contracting was make it easier to make heat pump sales. And it's the same with Kenza utilities. We're not here. To, to make loads of money out of the infrastructure contracts, we're mm. here to enable uptake of ground source heat pumps. That's that's the goal. We want ah. heat pumps at scale. Oh, well, that's yeah. lovely to hear. And it doesn't sound too good to be true. It sounds really well considered. And... Well, yeah, it's sensible, isn't it? That's, yeah. that's, that's the, the end goal is more heat pumps. I mean, yeah, there are the same risks as any uh, CPI-linked pricing mechanism. Because they don't change it enough and it makes no sense if you look <laughs> at the basket of goods. But that's the whole different issue. That's like the energy pricing issue that contributes to the, the heat pumps or an ideolog ideological issue perspective. Um, oh, right. So there's one bit we've not talked about before we wrap up, before we start wrapping up, because it's a, a long and winding process usually. Is the non uh, sorry, the, the non-domestic application of what you're doing? So you've talked a little bit about it, but like how are you approaching that as a a sector of the business? Because again, they're that's quite a different market. And it's one that amplifies the the opportunity here. Yeah, so that's a that's quite a complex one. And the in Kenza contracting, they have a whole big sales team that do that well, they have a sales team specifically for non-domestic, but that's where you sell the you know the the whole system to the consumer, or we can do a funded array where Kenzie Utilities owns that infrastructure and it serves that non-domestic building or group of buildings. What we're not doing yet is rolling out these mixed heat networks where you've got the domestic and the non-domestic. And Kenzie Utilities owns that infrastructure. And that's because of the stage that we're at in that market. 
we're not at a point now where where I can go out and work with a local authority, um, pick an area, install loads of equipment under the road, connect up houses, connect up schools, um, because the the business model isn't quite honed in enough yet. There's too much of a gap in funding there. There's too much. People have to put their hands in their pockets a bit too deep for you to get the scale of uptake at the rate that you need to make that work across large areas. And then you've got the complexities of a business model where your heat supply for your domestic houses may be reliant on the cool supply from your non-domestic. And how do you guarantee? And what do you do in 15 years when that Tesco closes? You know, so it's, it's, uh, it's, it's really complex. The perfect world is that you would be balancing heat and cool demands across these buildings. But yeah. it's it's actually difficult to coordinate and to finance. So there's going to be quite a lot of work required to refine that business offering in order to achieve that. But but our, our goal, um, my goal, <laughs> my, my job, um, is to have a subsidy-free consumer offer for normal private households by 2028. Wow. And that's that's ambitious. Yeah. Now, if I can if I can get the non-domestic side to tie into that and get that to work, it'll be much easier for everybody. But it's it's very complex. There's, there's a lot of work to be done to get them all to work together. Well, oh, well, if you can find a way to make it stack up without being fearful of the stroke of a policymaker's pen, you know, yeah. um, that's, that's, that's the way to do it, you know? Yeah. Well, this is it. We're on our own. We've got to come up with our own solutions. And Absolutely. And it's it's terrible to be beholden to government subsidies that, that change, you know, if you're lucky every three years or, you know, as we've seen before, every six months. <laughs> it, it doesn't It doesn't fit well with business planning. No. It's really, really appalling, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh God. All right. Um, I was wondering before we wrap up. Then, uh, Jeff, did you see we got an email this afternoon? Yeah, uh, I didn't look at it because I, I was I was in the middle of a, a, a um, Irish. I, I'm a ambassador in the Irish Green Building Council's or World Green Building Council's Building Life campaign, and we had a, we had a very important meeting. So I don't have time for this trifling piddly matters. Then, <laughs> well, um, I wonder whether you might want to respond to it now because, like, to get you talking and rambling about a question which is oh god, go on. Well, uh, uh so a fellow called Harry emailed us this afternoon who. He was asking us about training in retrofit. And if you've anything to throw into the mix, Lisa, you're more than welcome to. He's a a QS working for a residential developer, a recent graduate, and he's into the whole low carbon, low energy space. And he wants to continue his education. He doesn't know where where the best value is going to come from. So he's looking at the ACB Carbon Light and Retrofit Coordination courses that seem to be good, the Energy Trust's Level 5 Diploma in Retrofit Coordination and Risk Assessment, and looking at other courses from the BRE, the CIOB. I don't know what that is. What is that? Uh, it's the Chartered Institute of Building. Ah, right. Uh, and the Retrofit Academy. And he was asking if you have any advice for what my which angle view, one might pursue well i mean i have a very biased perspective on this because I, I, I have such a good relationship with the aecb but i would be hands down them because i know 
what they have, which which some other entities um, don't necessarily have, or I can't say that other entities have in the same way. They are fabulously nerdy about this stuff. They it's in they're <laughs> steeped in it, right? It is it's in their DNA. You know, they're thinking about these things when they should when they should be doing other things. You know, <laughs> and um, and that is what you need. Uh, you, you know, they're the kind of people who hang around in buildings long after they're built, sticking probes, God knows where. You know, and 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 looking at the results. And that is uh, so they're the, they're the fabric fetishists, but they've developed a heap. They're not necessarily. Yeah, yeah, they're not just fabric fetishists. <laughs> <laughs> they, they're they're very pragmatic as well in their positions. I like the fact that they've they've kind of shifted their perspective a little bit as well as as the evidence has shifted, which is the whole thing about bloody science. That's what you're supposed to do with the scientific method. Well, know? after you've been doing it for years, you don't get the same kick, do you? <laughs> <laughs> no, but honestly, I, I I couldn't recommend them highly enough. If you want to just get a, a tick a box and get a get a qualification, that's fine. Uh, there's lots of routes to go. I think what you'll find through the likes of the ACB is opportunities for learning and an ongoing collaboration to uh, networking, which uh, which are uh, really in, in, invaluable. You know, cool. so that would All be right. my yeah. Uh, very full throated, very partisan perspective. Very yeah. much so. Yes. Yeah. 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 Have you ventured into this sort of area at all, Lisa? No, no, I've avoided it as much as I possibly can. <laughs> Fair play to you. Um, so, Jeff, when summer? When's the ACB conference? I know you've just started oh, yeah. pitching for that. So we are looking for sponsors. Uh, that's one thing. So if you've got a business and it's related to this sphere. And you want well, there's, yeah. There's a couple of slots bottled I think it's the 29th and 30th of September um, in uh, Todd Morden of all places. It's um, it's a uh, close to Manchester, and uh, in uh, uh, w- one of the things that's interesting about it uh, is that uh, Charlie Luxton uh, has very kindly agreed to um, friend of the podcast has very kindly agreed to to give a, a keynote talk. Um, and so along some, some very interesting, other very interesting kind of talkers. Um, Bob oh, Lowe man. from UCL, for instance, as well, Professor. He's Professor Boblo. Um, uh, so yeah, uh, it, it, it'll be a fascinating event. Uh, you know, they, because they, they tend to be very un, unvarnished, and uh, I think Bob Lowe's talk is going to be quite doom laden. <laughs> that's my impression. <laughs> uh, um, but uh, there, there'll be a lot of a lot of really f- fascinating kind of. I'm looking forward to it. A really kind of good kind of opportunities to learn uh, and get into the substance of of of, of these issues. You know. So there you go. Yeah. Well, sounds great. All right. Get in touch with Jeff if you're interested in sponsoring uh, those events. Yeah. Tom Madden is like one of the few in my psychogeography. It's the site of one of the few points of regret I have in my life. I was invited to a, a Northern Soul rave there in 2001 that I never went to, like with a bunch of old soul boys. Like, what a mug. Like some some fellow in the when I was working in the 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 railway engineering in Glasgow, I was just administrator. Like a fellow there invited us to it. Would have been all old boys doing all the dancing and the high kicks and yeah. <laughs> anyway, well, I'll leave you with that melancholy. Uh, cool. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Lisa. It's really appreciated. It's really interesting, and we're well looking forward to hearing more. So yeah, yeah. if you've ever got more tales to tell, uh, to give us a shout. Um, exactly yeah thank you thanks a million i I definitely will it was great fun chatting with you both all right well uh thank you for listening um we'll go through the things join acan join the acb join the igbc if you get something out of this 
you probably know someone else who will too, so please share it with them. Um, talk to us about the consultancy. So maybe your marketing department, Lisa, <laughs> you never know. Uh, we do all sorts of things, messaging, research, positioning, branding, all the usual marketing suite, except like firmly focused on businesses within the built environment who are interested in sustainability and decarbonization. Yeah, we're supposed to be onboarding a demolition company soon, which mm. is going to be, that'll be a podcast eventually. Yeah. Have I missed anything? There's always something. It's oh, fine. I can't it's, remember. Yeah, yeah. yeah you've, said, yeah. you've said enough. It's grand. Yeah. I'm sick, right. of the, sick of hearing you. Yeah. Yeah, done. All right. Cheers. <laughs> All right. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye. Bye.